A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self-help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com. Hi, everyone. It's Raghu back with Mind Rolling, and I'm with Sadhvi Bhagavati Saraswati. And uh, welcome, welcome to Mind Rolling, Saraswati Ji. Mm, what a beautiful blessing and such a beautiful honor to be with you today. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Where are you? And that this I meant to ask before. Are you... <laughs> At the moment, I am in Los Angeles. Oh, okay. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm based in Rishikesh, India, right on the banks of Ganga. But currently, I'm in LA. Last night was my last live in-person event for this, this particular phase of the book tour, phase one of book tour. So I had my last event last night at USC. And so I am still here in LA, and then I head soon to go back home to India. Oh, really? Can you? I want to go. I can. You yes. Can. Oh, by you've God's got. Grace. Oh, you're a permanent resident, right? Yes, I am. Yeah. But they will be opening soon, hopefully, by yeah. God's grace, to others. So the book is Hollywood to the Himalayas: A Journey of Healing and Transformation, and it's uh, Saraswatiji's story of uh, growing up in America and ending up in India. I mean, we have certain definitive, although I'm decades before, but did something very similar, although I didn't stay and live there, although I have, over the years, there has this is the first time I have not gone last year to India. Every year I go to India. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was... Uh, Aside from all of the stories, the beautiful stories that you tell and the people that you've met and the places you've been, for me, uh, we, 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 just, we have so many crossings together. And one of them, of course, is the Ganges River, Ganga. And so it was like reading the book was going home, mm. basically, for oh, me. Oh, I'm so, so happy to hear that. It reminded me of... So much, so much. But all right, we got to hear, how did this happen? How did you, who grew up, I think, where, in the West Coast? I did, in California, quite literally in Hollywood. I literally grew up in the Hollywood Hills. Uh-huh. So, uh, and what was it that even for, a, I mean, many people do make it over to India, and uh, I... The the variance of the number of uh, motivations for that are huge. So what happened to you? <laughs> you know, it's it's amazing because 
I think when you and when so many others came to India at that time, and even today, so many come on a spiritual quest, looking for a higher truth, a deeper truth. For me, I would love to say that was why I came. It just isn't true. <laughs> I, I was 25 and in the midst of a PhD in psychology, I had graduated undergrad from Stanford University and was doing a PhD in psych. I didn't know anything about India. I was not called to India on any conscious level. I was not religious. I was raised in the reformed Jewish community of Los Angeles. But I also wasn't even one of those people who would have said, well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Mm. I didn't even self-identify as spiritual. And I was an academic. I was a scientist. I was also just in the throes of my own emotional, psychological struggles. And so spirituality was just something that had not yet found a, a place on the plate of my life. I agreed to go to India. It was my husband who wanted to go. And I agreed to go because I was a very strict vegetarian, a staunch vegetarian. And that's has, unusual too. No, it is unusual. Family. Yes. I, I was not born as a vegetarian, but when I was 15, sitting in France at a friend's house for Christmas dinner, and her mother brings out quail as this very elegant dish for a family Christmas dinner. And it still had the strings around it. And my friend leans over and whispers, which knife to use to cut the string. And suddenly it was this just epiphany moment of, oh my God, my food has to be untied before I eat it. And just in that moment, the bird on my plate was no more food than the plate itself was food or than the table was food. So I became this spontaneous, very visceral vegetarian at a young age and had had fights with waiters and all sorts of broken French, Spanish, even English in America about what the broth of a vegetable soup was made of or <laughs> what a sauce was made of or what something was seasoned with. And when India was suggested, I thought, well, at least I can eat nicely. At least I don't have to argue with these waiters. You know, in India, vegetarian means vegetarian. So I agreed to go and that's when, you know, on the airplane to India was really the core turning moment because I was someone who had, had never trusted. I didn't trust myself. I didn't trust God. I didn't trust the universe. I had been 
quite severely sexually abused in early childhood. And that ended up having ripple impacts into the the life of me as an adolescent and in my early 20s where I developed severe bulimia, Mm. depression, anxiety, all sorts of issues. And trust for me was just not a part of my life. I had learned to manage myself, to micromanage, to have this kind of death grip on, on my life. And I was managing. I was managing successfully. I was getting straight A's in a PhD program. I had my food and my moods under control. I was managing my marriage. And yet I wasn't free. But the idea of being free was also never something that had ever occurred to me. No one ever said, hey, by the way, simply managing your life is not actually the highest goal. Simply having this vice-like death grip on every aspect of your life such that it doesn't spiral out of control is really not the highest purpose that you've been born for. And around me, everyone I knew was managing their lives, some more successfully than others. But I had no idea that freedom was a possibility. And on the airplane to India, I had this moment where I said to myself, okay, this makes no sense. You are flying somewhere over Southeast Asia at the moment en route to a country that you know nothing about, have no interest in going to. The only redeeming factor that has gotten you on this plane is that you can get good vegetarian food. But there was this fantastic Indian vegetarian place on our corner. I mean, the San Francisco Bay Area (laughs) is certainly, there's, there's no dearth of great Indian vegetarian food. So I thought, okay, this makes no sense. And that's when, that's when I said, okay, It must be that I am going for a reason I don't know yet. And in order to find that reason, I have to keep my heart open. And I will be always forever so grateful for having that moment in which I really took a vow. And I've always been very hard on myself with regard to truth. I was never going to let myself not live up to the highest quality of what I saw as truth. So I said, I'm going to take a vow. And the vow is, I'm going to keep my heart open. And if I can't keep my heart open, then I'm going to get myself back to California, where at least I can start research for my dissertation, get practicum units, that there was no point in wandering around a country with my heart closed to why I was there. And that vow enabled me to then, over the next seven to 10 days, to 
have this, I've come to think about it as kind of a trust fall into the universe. You know, we do these trust fall exercises in school or in our corporate world where we close our eyes and we fall backwards into the arms of sometimes a stranger, sometimes even an enemy. But we know that that person isn't going to let us fall. And that was when I really began this trust fall into the universe of, okay, if I'm going to keep my heart open, something's going to guide me. And that led me to open a 500-page Lonely Planet guidebook in (laughs) Delhi and say, Rishikesh, like out of the blue. I had never heard of Rishikesh. I had no idea that the... Ganga River was sacred or holy. I had no idea the Himalayas were holy. I just knew mountains and river, and it was kind of close to Delhi, and there was yoga, and it sounded nice. And then I chose this hotel in Delhi called the Green Hotel because I was this avid environmentalist. <laughs> and when when we get to Rishikesh, And the driver drops us off on the downtown side and points across the river. And he points at this 400, 500 foot swinging footbridge and says, you cross bridge. Like you pick up your luggage and schlep it over the bridge by foot. Mm -hmm. It would have been so easy to say, you know what? can you just drop us off at a hotel where we don't have to carry our luggage across the bridge? But inside me, I was in this trust fall into the universe of I'm being guided and I need to just follow. And so we picked up our bags and carried them across the river. And after dropping them at the hotel, I said, I'm going to go put my feet in the river. And that was it. I was hot. I was tired. And I get down to the river. And I have this experience that 25 years later, I still cannot wrap it nicely semantically. An experience of the presence of the divine, of the perfection of the universe. And the perfection of me as not separate from the universe. And it was like a veil was pulled, not just off my eyes, but off of every way of knowing that I had. And I could see. And it knocked me literally to the ground. I was sobbing. Mm. And... There was no way to explain it. In fact, for many days, I was completely nonverbal. The only things I could get out were just, oh, my God, it's so beautiful. Oh, my God, it's so beautiful. Oh, my God, it's so beautiful. And I didn't need the semantics. I didn't need a framework to understand it, which I certainly didn't have. Mm -hmm. Because, oh, my God, it was so beautiful. And I had taken this, this trust fall that was just whatever happens. This is, uh, this is interesting 
because I spend a lot of time on these podcasts or when we do retreats and all that. Trust is a huge, huge thing. And the way that it entered into your life, because from what I'm getting, you went to India because, okay, that looks like a good place to go. Vegetarian food and the waiters aren't going to give me <laughs> bullshit all the time about what's in the soup or not. Okay, that, I, that I've never heard that motivation before. <laughs> See, uh, and I said every there's uniquely many, many motivations, and half the time you have no idea. So I, who went to India around this at around the same age, and I uh, absolutely only got there. That trust fall that you just talked about, and that's a beautiful story, and ending up in the in the Ganga. So I had that uh, same experience. I didn't go anywhere. I was actually running a radio station in Montreal, where I'm from. And Ram Dass ent- entered into the picture, who I had no idea about, and ended up uh, meeting him because they gave me a, they wanted me to promote the talk that he was doing in Montreal at McGill University. And I said, well, send me a tape. You must have something. I'm not just doing it, even though I love Tim Leary and Richard Alpert. And they did, and I got like, holy jeez, the truth. I find, I'm, And with humility and no BS from him. So I, I got to meet him. So I went to where he was staying in Montreal. Of course, I've told the story a million times, Saraswatiji, but... Uh, and there he was, and he just stopped. The whole world stopped. He stopped his world to just allow me to be completely embraced by this unconditionality. And I had what you had when you put your feet in the Ganga or, and, and started just saying, I'm going to let go here. And you went through all of that until you got to the Ganges. And in that same instance, I had that trust through him, which I later found out was our guru, Neem Karoli Baba. I had no idea. And, and the mo- I mean, I believed everything he was talking about. It was all intellectual until I, I, I pretty much got there. But I saw it all and experienced it all in those little those um, eyes right in front of me that just were... So that's how my trust thing happened. And yours took was a, a phenomenal variation <laughs> of the pretty much the same thing. You it's got embraced. mother, mother took you. Absolutely. It's been such extraordinary grace. And, you know, when people ask me, share your story, I always say, it's not my story. It's a story of grace. I have been blessed to be a vehicle through which the grace has flowed But it feels so much more like a story of that grace than a story of me. And that that experience and that knowing, that just absolute knowing, in a way that it belied everything I had ever thought, all of the senses that I had had of being, wrong and dirty and bad and not enough and somehow the cause of the abuse the cause of the abandonment Mm. somehow being inherently defective in some way and never feeling quite 
quite right, quite enough. And that may have been one of the reasons that I never was religious or spiritual. I felt disqualified mm. from grace, mm. that there was, there was something wrong with me and I needed to fix it. And I was certainly on what I thought was a path to fix myself of therapy and treatment and practices and this group and that group and whatnot. But it was a matter of to make myself fixed, to make myself whole, to make myself enough. And in that moment, suddenly it wasn't about me being whole. It was about wholeness existing and me not being separate from it, that there was nothing other than just pure perfection. And as it stayed in my eyes, as I moved my head and I was looking at, you know, a child, a tree, a telephone pole, a marble step, my own self, it didn't matter. It was all just infused with this, this perfection. And over the next couple of days, the next week rather, I had these experiences that because I had already taken the trust fall, because I had already had this incredible opportunity of awakening, that I was able to listen to, that otherwise I probably never would have listened to. And so I was walking through Paramarth Nikathan, which is the, the ashram where I have lived for 25 years. So walking through it just as a pathway, we were still staying at the Green Hotel and I discovered that the ashram was a beautiful pathway. It was so clean and just beautiful, all of these gardens and flowers. And it was so much nicer aesthetically than the alleyway as a pathway to get from the hotel to the river. And I was walking through it one day and I hear a voice that says, you must stay here. Now, I was not a mystic. I was not someone who had ever read any kind of mystic literature. I had never heard of anyone hearing voices other than Joan of Arc and schizophrenics. Mm -hmm. And so I look around, there must've been someone who spoke and there wasn't. And so I ignored it because it seemed like that was what you do with a voice that no one spoke. You must've just imagined it. And I kept walking and I heard it again, you must stay here. And again, I looked around and there was no one. And I was just about to ignore it again when I remembered my vow from the airplane. And as I said, I have always been really strict with myself in terms of truth and truth at the highest level. So there was no way I was ever going to let myself off the hook and just close my heart off in this particular experience because hearing a voice sounded so crazy. And I said, all right, if you ignore this, as crazy as it seems, 
you've got to go back to Delhi and get yourself back to California because that's the vow you made. And since I really was not in the mood to do that at that point, I walked into a sign that said office. And that was how the how mm. the whole me moving into Parmarth Nikathon began. And mm. then finally, about a week later, when the head of the ashram, a revered, revered, renowned guru of India named Swami Chidanand Saraswati, who is now my guru, mm. when he arrived, and I, of course, I didn't know that he was this amazing, magical, spiritual leader. I thought he was a president, like just the president of an institution. So I had expected this man in a suit and tie with a briefcase who was going to meet me across the desk. And when I, when I met him and I had an experience quite similar to what you describe in meeting Ramdas of just being in this ocean of love, of truth, of presence, of perfection. Mm. When, I, when I walked out of that meeting, my husband and I had planned that we were going to go off to the mountains the next day. I had been waiting and waiting for this president to arrive. He wasn't coming. And so we had thought, all right, forget it. Let's just go off to the mountains. And so we already had booked for the next day. And I, I walk out of Swamiji's room thinking, all right, well, we'll, we'll stay when we get back. And I try to take a turn to walk out of the ashram. And my feet literally were glued to the ground. I could not <laughs> pick my feet up. And it's, it's an amazing story. And it's in the book, of course. I don't want to spoil the story for everybody. But the, the moral was that basically until I realized that I was meant to stay now, I couldn't pick my feet up. It was literally as though they were crazy glued to the ground of the ashram. <laughs> and mm. so I, I developed this opportunity to say yes to the universe offering me grace and wisdom and direction that I otherwise never would have been able to say yes to because I was so stuck in my own mind of fear and of separation and of not enoughness and of not trusting and all of that. But at that point, I was able to say yes. And it's been just the most amazing blessing of 25 years. Mm, that's so great. You know, uh, as I said, we do have, I mean, I've spent time in Rishikesh and, of course, in the Himalayas. And so we have a lot in common, for sure. Um, but one of the strongest, I mean, certainly Ganga and Mother, this is so important to me as well. But uh, above all things that we were introduced to in India by Neem Karoli Baba, one, uh, uh, I mean, Mother is very prominent in that 
transmission. I mean, he didn't teach. He, he just hung out with us, basically. Yes. Uh, but uh, Hanuman. Hanuman is... Uh, and, and honestly, for me, when I went to India, I had no idea about anything. But I wasn't into uh, Morty Idols or any of that stuff. If anything appealed to me, even to today, it's, it's Buddhist thought and uh, most especially Tibetan Buddhism in terms of a worldview that really made sense to me, the truth. But then along came Hanuman, a monkey. And I kept saying, well, this is just too, way too corny, a monkey. And uh, do you know, uh, so I would sit down in Maharaj, we call it Neem Karoli Baba yes. Maharaji, as everybody is called in India, yes. any Baba. Uh, and I'd, uh, he'd say, you, you know, um, Christ, you know, Christ, and we're all Jewish hanging. I mean, 90% of the first people who were there for some crazy reason were Jewish, but that's look, you know, the adventurous spirit who would go to India so they could eat good vegetarian food. <laughs> you did. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, um, uh, he, he said, you know, Christ and Hanuman, they're the same thing. Christ and Hanuman. I was like, first of all, I don't know anything about Christ or Hanuman because I'm Jewish. I just said, but in India, head. if you're white, you're Christian. Yeah, like there's, right. they, they, there's not nearly the awareness of Judaism there. And so there's just an assumption that if you're, if you're yeah, right. white, you're American, yeah. European, you must be Christian. Yeah. Uh, exactly. But in this case, this is someone beyond somebody in India who had access to absolutely everything at any yes. millisecond that was needed. And you know what we ended up thinking? Because he didn't ever really mention anything about Jews, Judaism, but all the other, you know, that talked mm -hmm. about the, uh, you know, from Muhammad to, to Christ to Buddha and on and on and on. <laughs> One day Ramdas said, yeah, and uh, Moses, <laughs> he looked the other way. Like, it, it was, and all we can think of, there really isn't Jews and Christians. There's only one thing Jesus was Jewish. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, anyhow, but then that introduced us to uh, Hanuman, the emblem of pure service, pure love, pure devotion, mm. and compassion. And what happened? I'm sorry, I'm going on a little here, but it's I'm, beautiful. You inspired me here with Hanuman. So what happened is Ramdas. Um, uh, they put a. They went to Jaipur and they got a, a beautiful artist. He and a couple of other. Uh, one major devotee was our mother, Siddhima. Her name was, and uh, they put together this murti this statue of Hanuman, which is now in Taos, New Mexico, at the temple, the only Neem Karoli Baba temple in the West, uh, or in America, is at, in Taos. And I've been that, there, actually. Uh, you've been there? Oh, yes. okay, great. So you have then certainly had that darshan, and for me, that darshan is no different than when I sat in front of Maharaja. I mean, mm -hmm. that uh, alive. And uh, so I grew to love Hanuman, through a Morty that was placed in America, although I had connectivity to a couple, you know, so many incredible Hanuman Mortis in India, incredible. 
And uh, so somehow, no matter that I had no interest in such a thing, and it would seem a little bit like weird, I couldn't help myself. So people mm-hmm. ask me about relationship with, you know, we do the Chalisa all the time. We, you know, that's a major practice of ours that we brought back to India with, you know, and certainly Krishnadas, who I'm sure you know. And uh, it, and I just say, I have no idea because it's beyond rational thought why this happens. Yes. And you have expressed so much of that in the book and certainly, yeah, you tell me about Hanuman. I want to hear a Hanuman oh, story from you. So, well, Hanuman, I mean, first of all, everything exquisite is beyond rational thought anyway. And mm-hmm. so the simple fact that something defies rational thought, not only does it not undermine its significance, but it actually... Mm-hmm is, I think, in many ways, the necessary soil in which that which is exquisite grows. Because the rational thought seems to kind of squeeze, squeeze exquisiteness out of experiences. So I had an experience with Hanuman. He's my Devta, which means in India, as you know, Everyone worships many, many forms of the divine. But then most people have what's called an Isht Devta, which is like your personal God, sort of who is the one who is most precious to you. And for me, that's Hanuman. And it has evolved in the most beautiful way over 25 years. And it began because... My guru, Swamiji, who we also call Maraji, but just for the sake of not confusing listeners here, we will, we will refer to him as Swamiji. He said to me, in the very beginning, he said, you know, you're going to touch millions. You're going to heal. And he just, he would go on about what I was going to do in the world. And it sounded to me like my mother saying things like, oh, you're the prettiest girl in the class. Or, you know, oh, you're you're the best. She loves me. And therefore, I'm sure in her eyes, I'm the prettiest girl in the class. And yet, I was acutely aware that by all objective standards, I was not the prettiest girl in the class. But it was sweet that my mom, you know, thought so. And... And I certainly appreciated her trying to ease my, you know, insecurities of adolescence. Mm. And so when Swamiji would say, you are going to touch millions, you're going to heal so many, you will see. I felt like here is this mother figure. And it's interesting, you spoke about the mother and he He's such a mother. He is such the Mm. mother energy. And I felt like here is this divine mother trying to make me feel good, 
to inspire me to and and of course he must be exaggerating far beyond belief but and so i would say things to him like that's really sweet thank you so much for saying that now obviously we both know it isn't true but that's okay i'm going to do whatever i can to be of service and whatever small ripple that has that will be my contribution mm. and he just would say you wait you wait and then one day he hands me this book and it was the ramayan mm. and it was a it wasn't a children's version but it was not only all in english but it was told as a story so it wasn't you know chopa by chopa it wasn't like that it was just the running story yeah, of yeah. the ramayan and it was a couple hundred pages and i literally stayed awake all night long reading it and i went to him the next morning sobbing and i said i get it i get it it's not about me it's about god and if this monkey can actually make himself enormous and tiny and fly across oceans and carry the mountains and do all of this amazing miracles hold the sun under his his arm simply by his love and his devotion to god then maybe i actually really can be this vehicle this instrument of healing and so hanuman became for me my ishta devta and and i love i mean i love that when he gets asked how did you do these how did you you know you're so amazing hanuman how did you do all of this he doesn't say well I'm God. Like, don't you know that? <laughs> he doesn't say that. Don't you know who my father is? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, you know, I've been working out a lot at the gym. I've got this great trainer and I'm taking these tonics, you know, the lift of the mountain exercise and the make yourself small tonic. Nothing. He doesn't even say there's some special mantra, special power. He says, I just take Bhagwan Ram's name. I take God's name and it happens. Not I do it, it happens. And for me, that has been the mantra for my life. Mm. It's not about what we do, what we muscle our way through or achieve or accomplish it's about how can i be this empty vessel how can i just get out of the way enough mm -hmm. so that that energy flows mm. so that it can happen yeah yeah you know, here's a here's a little story that absolutely exemplifies what you're speaking to but every when we were in the ashram every tuesday uh pundit would or somebody would uh 
chant Sundarkan mm-hmm. from the Ramayana, which is mm-hmm. where Ram is banished, who has been banished to the forest 14 years with his wife Sita and his brother Lakshman. Sita gets abducted by a badass demon from Lanka, Ravana, and then Ram has to find her, and some, somehow this beautiful monkey says, I'm going to help you, Hanuman. So then ensues this whole story where Hanuman does find her in Lanka and burns the city down and comes back to Ram. And at this point, and, and Ram asks to see him to say, okay, this, what, what happened? Of course, he knows everything, but it's just Mariada, they call it, just propriety that he was going to ask. And so uh, at this point, when this part of Sundar, the beautiful, Sundarkan means the beautiful, at this point, Maharaji, he probably wasn't even paying attention or God knows how that works, but uh, at this point, he, when this meeting happened between Ram and Hanuman, he would always weep. Because it was Ram saying, "What after he hears the story of what you know, Hanuman found Sita, and he burned the city, and he said, now you can go there and con- you know, vanquish the demons.'" And uh, so Ram said, "What? There's nothing, no way I can repay you. Uh, whatever you want in any of the you know, sixteen thousand realms or whatever, I will give it to you." And then this is where Hanuman falls down at his feet and says, save me, save me from the tentacles of egoism. Mm. There was nothing going on with Hanuman except that. Yes. And that's, I now know, we all now know, without Maharaji saying anything, this is what it's all about. It's not about enlightenment and getting shakti and all that stuff. It's about what can I do for you, not what is what I want. You know, and Ram Dass, of course, expressed that very well in his teachings over the years. And uh, but uh, that is the uh, the core of yes. what Hanuman and Christ, for that matter, it's all about that. And that is, uh, it's a little bit missing these days. Yes, yes, it is. And that it's, it's tragic on so many levels. It's tragic on an individual spiritual level because without that surrender and service, we don't actually have the experience of the truth of who we are. When you talk about karma yoga, the yoga of action, karma, as you know, literally means action. It's not about volunteering three hours, you know, the first Saturday of the month or something. It's about how, how can every action be an action that stems out of the awareness of Union, yoga. So karma yoga is how do I move through the world, every action, out of that awareness of union? And how does every action lead to union? So the actions that I'm doing, whether I'm 
making sandwiches to feed the poor, whether I'm walking down the street, how can those actions be actions in union and in that awareness of oneness? Mm. And so, you know, our, our sampradaya, our tradition is rooted in karma yoga action but it's it's karma yoga that is rooted in bhakti yoga devotion so it's not and of course which is rooted in jnana yoga wisdom so it's this beautiful confluence and this is true obviously not just of our sampradaya but it's true of all of the great spiritual teachings lineages teachers is that which we do that karma that action when it's steeped in love love for god then it's yoga it's union and of course all of that is is gyan is wisdom and so the action becomes not about what kind of good deeds are you doing or what kind of merit are you going to get or karmic fruits are you going to get but the service itself is the practice because you begin as like we're the ones over here with a lot and we're going to serve those of you over there who don't have anything so you begin in ignorance and separation but the service becomes that spiritual practice through which through the other person's kind of agreeing to be the receiver on some kind of karmic level soul level we get the opportunity to see ourselves in them to realize that it's actually self serving self mm. that there is yeah. no distinction very mm-hmm. uh i want to say to everybody this is this is um what we all are aspiring to and i like to say well this is the kind of theme of mind rolling this podcast is how do we bring that down into the day-to-day life that we lead hmm. and uh and not be avoiding any of the quote unquote stuff then you know just going around it we cannot go around it yes. and one interesting thing is in it's in your book is that you have not you've had a lot of suffering as a a, a young person growing up tremendous amount and uh you had to really face that stuff. And um, one of the things that I always get concerned about, people finding the the path, but having, uh, well, we all have trauma and we all have suffering. It's just a matter of uh, different levels of it. But evading it and going around it because we are now spiritual is a common, common thing. Yes. And theme. And... uh, I always suggest to people that once we can start to see, especially around doing service, 
it is a great practice. And uh, once we can use it in a way that we can see what our motivations are, like you just said, yeah, we're not going out and giving food and you know putting it on a uh, on a spreadsheet. Okay, Monday yes. the seventh, I did that. You know, that's, gold star today. Yeah, yeah, right. Get your gold star today. Uh, but that's cool if you do that. Even that's cool because all that really counts is some kind of mindfulness and awareness we just mentioned, you mentioned. And that awareness has to include a non-judgmental... That's why Ramdas's recent thing over the time, last years he was in Maui, was move out of your head into the center of your chest to the place of loving awareness and use your breath to get there. And from that place, you can witness without judgment and without being critical and without killing yourself, like we all kill ourselves every day. And, and we believe in every thought that goes by. So starting there, that's why I think that is so tremendously important. And uh, it, it, you cannot leave out, of course, the power of opening one's heart. You cannot mm. leave that out. And those two things, and that's kind of our little mix in terms of what is happening now that we came back from India and many of us, and we were been gathering with Ramdas for about 15 years till two years ago uh, with our Buddhist friends and uh, just the way in of that, uh, which that blend got manifested really had the discriminating wisdom, the gyan, uh, on one hand, and of course the uh, bhakti on the other, uh, fully, fully aware of the uh, moment to moment, what do I need and what do I want, and that's okay. And it gradually, it takes, here I am decades later, it takes a long time to manifest, and that's okay too. I love uh, Jack Cornfield, who's a good friend of ours, uh, he has, it's, you're just human, it's okay. Yes, yes, <laughs> exactly. Human. You know, exactly. so, yeah, so uh, it's uh, not cautionary in terms of the reality of becoming completely in union. That is where we're headed, and we know that. We have that intellectually, but also staying on the ground of really working at practicing to get where we want. Absolutely. And you know, when you spoke about bringing it down into a day-to-day practice. So what, what I have found is that there's so many ways in and I use them all because we are human. We're all human and we lose it. It's like, we'll have it. You'll have that beautiful experience and then it'll It'll dissipate. And then you need to kind of recatalyze it again. And for me, what I have found is that in our time of seated meditation, whatever your practice may be, one of the experiences that seems common amongst even different types of meditation, even different I don't like to say levels because it implies a hierarchy, which obviously does not exist, but rather people's experience of meditation. So are you a new meditator or have you been meditating for 40 years? Either way, something that seems 
common amongst everyone is that if you sit long enough, there comes a time where you lose the sense of where you end and the rest of the world begins. And it may be something as basic as no longer feeling where your leg ends and the cushion you're sitting on begins. But an experience of not being so separate from all that is. And so whether it's just emerging into the cushion upon which you sit, a feeling of the wind blowing and rather than feeling it kind of stopping at your cheek and experience that it is blowing through you, that you are permeable. Mm. That simple experience gives us the knowing that we are not actually as separate from the rest of the world as our thinking mind wants to tell us we are, which operates. And our culture. And our culture, culture. absolutely. Well, it's a culture of objectification. The thinking mind operates on the basis of objects. Like if I can hold it at an arm's length, I can look at it, understand it, judge it. So that's what the mind does is it, Mm-hmm. puts everything at an arm's length separate from me an object and our culture as you so rightly said is very very supportive of that encouraging of that because if things are objects and we're an object then they can keep convincing us that we need to be a bigger better shinier object (laughs) and so we need to keep buying Mm. whether we're buying possessions or we're just buying the storyline that says Mm. you know we're not enough we're going to keep engaging in culture and society the way that it runs, which is consumerism and materialism. I'm going to keep buying things to feel fuller, better, wholer, more successful. I'm going to keep running myself into the ground with my work so that I might have more money power to be able to buy things that will make me happy. So yes, the culture obviously loves that, supports that, indoctrinates that but in our meditation we have an opportunity to have a palpable sense that that isn't true and then when we stand up from our meditation I look for opportunities all day long to experience oneness with someone or something else so for example I am a great lover of tree hugging. It is one of my (laughs) all-time favorite things to do. Mm -hmm. In fact, I saw just a couple days ago, I was in the San Francisco Bay Area and was at a friend's house and she had a bumper sticker sign thing up on her wall that said, I don't just hug trees, I make love to them. And I thought, wow, I've never actually seen it written and explained Mm -hmm. like that. And yes, that is the experience of an ultimate union. And I try to do it even just in the eyes. You're sitting on a plane. A stewardess is handing you a glass of water for just a moment to look into their eyes. And obviously, you know, you want to make sure that people don't feel like you're thinking something wrong, but 
I have found that if I can just, in my experience, look into their eyes and see and know and feel that oneness, that somehow the idea that I end over here and you begin over there, and that there's this empty space between us, that if I look in your eyes long enough, that empty space just becomes a joke. Like there is no empty space between us. And you experience that sense of oneness. And I I do it with as many people as I can during the course of the day. And again, of course, with trees, with water, with flowers, I just try as much as I can throughout the day to keep giving myself that reminder of you are not separate. So that when I am engaged in conscious action, conscious karma, conscious service, that awareness is more available to me. And, you know, one of my favorite, favorite prayers from one Jewish Hindu to another Jewish Hindu is the (laughs) prayer of St. Francis of Assisi of, oh Lord, make me an instrument of thy Mm. peace. And, Mm. you know, where there is darkness, let me bring love or let me bring light where there is hatred, love, where there is despair, hope. And it's just this beautiful prayer of, oh yeah, let me be an instrument. Because when I think of an instrument, you think about how useful it is. You don't think about how beautiful it is. Nobody ever says, oh my God, that is just you know the most beautiful hammer I've ever seen. What matters is, does it work? Like when you want to hammer in a nail, is this thing useful? And I love that prayer because it reminds us we are here to have the opportunity to be instruments. Meaning it's not about what are we covered in, the diamonds, the gold, the clothing, the titles, the acclaim. It's how much of an instrument are you? How useful are you? And of course, that takes us then deep into our, back into our spiritual practice, because if I'm not in peace inside, then nothing I really do makes that big of a difference. I mean, it's still good to do it, as you said, even if whatever you're doing, you're doing it just because you're going to get a gold star, still do it because there are people who are hungry and your your sandwich feeds them, whether it brings you spiritual enlightenment or not. Well, you're going to be aware of it. Anyway. You're going to be aware. You're going to be aware. Exactly. Period. You're going to be aware of, of where this is coming from, self, selfish exactly. motivation. So exactly. it's all good. It's a win-win. And then at some point that'll stop happening and it, exactly. you won't be in self-involved. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, and you were talking about the way that you embrace trees and people and, and be in, in a situation which allows you to blend, basically, and uh, realize that one nest that we we really do all have but uh it just occurred to me that and and you talk about it in the book that one one major practice and probably one of the 
another thing that, I mean, it's very important. There's two things in India that are super important aside from, um, I mean, if you're fortunate and you find a great teacher and you don't find gurus, they kind of find you, but yes. whatever it is. Uh, but to be able to spend time with people who have that same exact motivation to get free and be with that community of people, that allows for much more of enabling to just blend and realize that you are not separate. So satsang, for sure. Yes. And then last thing I'll say before we got to go is... Another, one of the thing that struck me in, in, in the very beginning of your book was an experience you had. I think you got to Hardwar, or, you know, just on your way to Rishikesh, and some family took you in out of yes, the blue. We were Somebody adopted. just said, Yeah, you and your husband. And uh, that is something, and you could not believe that. <laughs> This was happening. What do you? People don't do that. They don't just take you in and they feed you and and make you feel like you're uh, the the long lost yes. uncle, you know, yes. and aunt. It doesn't happen, but it does happen in India, and we got the same thing. We were taken into these homes. I mean. These were all devotees in this instance, but it's happened to me without knowing anybody, just like it did with you. And uh, you are made to be part of the family, period. And you know Instantly. what's so beautiful about that for me is India operates, as you say, with everybody as that family. And I realized after that, when I first started wearing saris, and which I did right from the beginning, and I would walk down the street and these random Indian women would come up to me and literally stick their hands in my underwear and or into my bra to like adjust the different parts of my sari. And the first time that happened, I thought, oh my God, I've been violated. You know, this <laughs> random woman just stuck her hands in my underwear. And then I realized, Oh, no, wait. She actually just did for me exactly what she would have done for her daughter yeah. if her daughter was walking out of the house in a very poorly tied sari. Mm. She fixed it. And mm. that I had this opportunity to either feel violated or to feel adopted. And what an extraordinary opportunity to mm. allow yourself to feel adopted because yeah. otherwise, I mean, there is no social space in India as you've realized. So yes, you get taken into people's homes, but, and fed and loved up and random people will say to you things like, so, you know, do you have any children? What do you mean you don't have children? Why don't you <laughs> want to have children? What do your parents think about you not having children? Don't you like children? And you think, who are you? And again, you can feel violated or you can feel adopted. This is yeah, a exactly family right. member. Yeah, yeah. And this. that opportunity, I'm an mm. only child. I don't have siblings. And that opportunity to just be adopted into this huge family mm. has been yeah. so beautiful. 
But the idea of letting go into being adopted or feeling violated, those it's coming to a fork in the road. We have these forks every day where we have the opportunity to let go into trust and intuition through intuition, which is a lot of your story, a lot of all of our stories. So that, I love that story, Saraswati Ji. Thank you, thank mm. you, thank you. And thank you for being here. Ah, what a joy. sharing space. And uh, everybody, um, of course, we will have show notes and we'll link you to Saraswati Ji's work in India and also, of course, the book. And yeah, I, I'm, I, you're going back to India shortly and... Uh, I'm just, uh, you send me a postcard saying, okay, you can come now. <laughs> Done. I will do it. And I wanted to, I wanted to say, by the way, just mm. lastly in closing, as you mentioned about the book, is to me what's really important about the story and the reason that I put the hundreds of hours into writing it is not just the fascinating spiritual adventure that I had, which of course, you know, as we've talked about is quite an adventure and you'll laugh and you'll cry and it's a beautiful story. But the other arc, the physical arc was that arc of me literally going from Hollywood to the Himalayas. But the other arc the arc of shifting how we think from what I think of as this Hollywood way, which is you are your body, you are your story, you are your history, you are your neuroses, you are mm-hmm. your bank account that leads to all of this suffering, to the Himalayan way of thinking, which is you have a body. It's beautiful, love it, feed it, care for it, use it to experience the amazing gifts of creation. But you aren't it. And that's a shift that everyone can make. Mm. And so I'm really hopeful that we will see a great shift in way of thinking from the Hollywood way of thinking to the Himalayan way of thinking (laughs) of letting go and healing and transforming. So for your listeners, yes, obviously come to India. We would love to have you. You can go to Kanchi, go to the Neem Karoli Baba Ashram in Kanchi. There's actually one in Rishikesh as well Mm -hmm. that I know Krishna Das comes and stays at for quite a while every year and come and be with us at Parmarth Nikathan in Rishikesh. We'd love to have you, but I know that that's not necessarily possible for all of you. And I don't want people to think that in order to have this experience, you have to physically make that journey. It's a journey that you can make wherever you are in the world. And I'm so, so grateful to be able to have been here today with you and so, so grateful for the way that you're bringing Ramdas's wisdom and presence and divinity 
to everyone. Thank you, Saraswati Ji. Thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, everybody, we will see you next week on Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and... So many great, great friends <laughs> are there. Mm. Namaskar. Namaste. Namaste.